0: Welcome to The Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schoffer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain The Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. Mobility is essential for the well-being of communities and for the people within them. The automobile dominates the mobility market almost everywhere in the United States, but public transit plays important roles, reducing congestion and assuring mobility for travelers who can't or choose not to go by car. We normally associate transit with larger, high-density cities, but the need for mobility in smaller communities and rural areas by means other than the auto is important if not especially visible. Does transit exist in these smaller places? And what does it look like if it does? And what are the unique challenges it faces? To get some insights into these issues, we're talking with Scott Brogan, who is Executive Director of the Community Transportation Association of America. Scott, welcome. I'm very happy to talk with you today.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And I'm really uh, eager to discuss rural transportation. Not many people think about what uh, a lot of our members do when they think about the public transit network around
0: the country. So, so we want to know what your members do. First of all, tell us what is the Community Transportation Association of America?
1: Sure, we're um, kind of a hybrid trade association. We've got about twelve hundred members around the country. Um, most of those are operating agencies. They're public agencies. They're a private sector public. Uh, they're nonprofit. Um, they 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 serve. Rural communities, which, from a census designation, are communities fifty thousand population and below. They uh, work in small cities, usually around two hundred thousand or so, um, is is kind of where we, we, we break off there. A lot of uh, CTA members are serving exclusively people with disabilities, older adults. They work in tribal areas. They're they're working with. Um, Ah, uh, veterans, kind of specialized types of transportation.
0: I see. Okay, so so, um, how are their problems different than the problems in a big city transit agency?
1: Well, you know, in some in some ways, it's scalable. Um, they're smaller, um, but oftentimes too, in, in in incorrectly, people view these types of agencies, particularly the rural and the specialized operators, as smaller versions of the Chicago Transit Authority. and they're not. They um, often are providing service in a demand response mode, which now we all in the industry call on demand. Um, they uh, their issues, their 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 ridership tends to be less dependent on um, commuters uh, than than your your typical big urban operation. Um, they also tend to be less reliant on fairbox recovery as a means to fund what they do than a lot of the bigger cities
0: do. So those those are really important differences. Are there? So you've already really answered this question, but I'm thinking I was going to ask you about the market segments that that your members address, and I, it sounds like to a large extent they're what we might call captive riders.
1: They are captive riders in in, in some sense. They're people that um, maybe they're older adults that are going to congregate meal sites. They're going to human and social service settings. Um, they are uh, sometimes younger younger children, uh, teenagers, doing the same. Uh, uh, you've got a lot of non-emergency medical transportation-type trips, so standard doctor's appointments, standard uh, therapies, on up to very skilled non-emergency medical transportation services like transportation to dialysis or chemotherapy, things that require additional training and expertise on the part of the operator of the vehicle.
0: So these are riders that might actually need assistance during the journey?
1: Correct, correct. Uh, uh, All these systems since their inception, most of them early 80s, generally speaking, have been fully accessible from the jump. So um, they were kind of meeting the ADA before the ADA passed uh, because a lot of their ridership were people in wheelchairs or people with other sorts of disabilities that needed assistance, older adults needing assistance, that kind of thing.
0: So you said something that caught my attention, and and that is the the, the implication is there there that um, they, the, your your members were in business before ADA came along. Correct. Yeah, so that is that's in, interesting. So in this, in some respects, you're mar- you're dealing with some people who were market leaders.
1: Yes, and you know one of the challenges we're facing is the in many cases the originating leaders at these agencies are now getting to an age where they are retiring, and and so we are seeing over the last five years and probably for the next five. Kind of a transition period between um, folks who founded this kind of industry and the people who are inheriting it and taking it in new directions, deploying new technologies, those kinds of things
0: so but you're but they're finding these people. They're finding the younger people that are willing to move in that in those directions.
1: Well, I say yes quickly. I know that it's a challenge. Um, succession planning is something that all of. Uh, our members are aggressively looking at and and trying to come up with with ways to deal with that issue because, uh, you know, it's a concern. And I I, I can't think of any that, you know, have have not been able to find uh, people, but uh, finding the right person. And our industry's changed quite a bit, like all forms of public transportation have changed. So you've got you've got to understand technology in new ways to really run these agencies. You've got to understand the value of data and what that's telling you. Um, uh, You've got to be kind of in part ways, a, a politician that can work with local cities or frankly, local local small towns to get the local share that you need to match your federal funds in order to continue operating. So they're, The 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 challenge is if the right person that comes along is somebody who who embraces all of that and and sees and has a real service um, a real a real service attitude that that can go a long way.
0: I'm wondering though, given the scale difference between your members and the let's say the big city transit operators, that doesn't that suggest that leadership among your members has to be Less, if you will, less specialized, more kind of uh, capable of, of many different tasks to lead these organizations and to do the other tasks that you just talked about, which is bringing together the community support and and the resources to make it work.
1: Oh, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, it is not uncommon at all for a rural transit manager because of a call out to be driving in the afternoon. Uh, you don't see that. In no. in a major metro, metropolitan area, so you, you're exactly right. They've got to they've got to kind of embrace that and have that broad based skill set, and uh, um, you know, and frankly, like to be busy because there's there's so much, um, so many challenges and so much work and, and demands for these for these uh, the, for the leadership for the boards of these systems. That yeah, it, it, it no no two days are the same.
0: Which is you can see that say that is a good th- a good thing or not a good thing it depends on the indiv- individual. But the situation is, sounds like it it's one where most of these agencies don't have a deep staff where they can delegate no. you know, multi multiple levels. No,
1: they don't. They don't, and and that's one of the challenges and one of the things that CTAA does here here in Washington D.C. on their behalf is try to always make sure that the kind of regulatory structure. That the federal government is requiring is right-sized to smaller agencies because uh, too often we see kind of one-size-fits-all approaches that that are really built around the big systems like Chicago, LA New York and don't take into account that uh, even in cities the size of a uh, an Ames, Iowa's uh, or or a Bloomington Indiana to say nothing of, Rural services throughout Iowa and Indiana um, you know they they don't have the capacity to meet some of this regulatory burden and and one of the roles that we play is to try to get those things right sized so they take into account that you're dealing with three people in a, in a in a management role for a system and they they simply can't provide that same level of uh, of uh, uh, regulatory oversight, maybe that that you see at a bigger agency.
0: So you're their advocate in dealing with the Federal Transit Administration.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, sometimes I feel like that's that's my role is to be the purse, the crank in the corner of the room, saying, "How is this going to work for a small agency?" <laughs> and and that's okay. That's that's what we're here to do, and make sure that uh, there's 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 you know hundreds and hundreds of these agencies all around the country. So if you just look at sheer numbers, there's the, their volume is, is is great and they cover large swaths of the country. Um, and for a lot of people, they're their only way to get around. So yeah, I think that role is an important role and one that we as an organization embrace.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's critically important for the people who, who use the services. So are there specific service innovations that your members are using or developing to deal with this fairly difficult situation?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think like all forms of transit right now, the the you know, most of these agencies, and we're talking about rural transit now, they've been doing on demand since the beginning. And I kind of find it funny sometimes that that we've got people that have discovered on-demand mobility and act like it's been reinvented. But, in fact, um, that's been the heart of what our members have been doing for oftentimes 30, 40 years. Uh, originally, it was a dial-a-ride. You call in, you schedule a trip, trip comes, gets you, um, on demand. Uh, now, with the technology that's available, we can provide those services same day instead of maybe having a 24- or 4 48-hour advance notice window and, you know, I think any of us listening here should, you know, innately understand that living your life with a 24- or a 48-hour advance notice versus um, instantaneous mobility, it's a, it's, like, it's a game changer. So it, what we're seeing is, like, significant improvements to an operating environment that can, again, continue to improve the lives of the passengers, which is really the goal here.
0: So what contributes to that? Are you, are you talking about computer-aided uh, dispatching?
1: Sure. Computer-aided dispatching, geographic positioning and information systems. Um, the, not so much as you might imagine the smartphone. Um, uh, a lot of CTA members, when they institute these pieces and they, they kind of allow for a ridership to book on a phone, maybe even pay for a trip on the phone, um, they still tend to call in. Um, uh, it's, just a, it's, it's just a function of what uh, uh, the passenger's comfort levels. But, yeah, it's, it's all of those technologies improving. It's, it's the vehicle's. And, and, and the, the rolling stock and the quality of that improving. It's, uh, it's the training that the, the drivers, the dispatchers, the frontline personnel are getting. All of those things are, are, are making for, ideally, better and more efficient use of the pu- public dollars invested in public transit in these communities.
0: How are the vehicles different? What's the innovation there?
1: Not as much as I, as I'd like to see, but like, like in general public transit, we're starting to see rural transit systems adapt and adopt battery electric technologies and zero emission technologies. Uh, we have some members that are testing out fuel cell technologies. I think you've also seen, just like we've seen in private automobiles, uh, a real advanced suite of safety technologies on all vehicles that are, that are helping as well.
0: What about automation, self-driving vehicles? Autonomous? Yeah.
1: There are tests out there right now in rural parts of the country of autonomous vehicles. So it's happening. Um, the, some of them even are not just autonomous, but they're also fully accessible in being autonomous. So those are, um, those are happening. Uh, it, it's because you're not running a route. You know a, a standard fixed route. It, it's a little more difficult and more challenging as well, just kind of the rural highway infrastructure is a little bit more difficult to embed in some of the technologies that are necessary for autonomous technologies. but it is happening it is it is starting to be piloted, and uh, you know we're 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 watching these things closely and trying to see what can be adapted by our membership and 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 what lessons
0: are being learned? I recently read a news story about something. I think some uh, pilot work that was being done in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Are, are you aware of that?
1: I am. That's exactly one of the ones I was uh, uh, I was referencing
0: there. So, and that's an an automated vehicle. But uh, my understanding is is that there's a an assistant that's on on board. If that may be a safety driver or somebody to help the passengers.
1: Yeah, it's almost more like. Um, and some systems are calling them ambassadors or concierges it's it's people to make sure that, that that some of those things are going safely and particularly as we transition towards these ideas you know you just can't go from 0 to 60 and go from from a, what we were doing to absolutely no people on the vehicle um particularly with a a frail and kind of at-risk population that's on a lot of these vehicles.
0: It seems like a really important opportunity to experiment. Is there federal money in there from the point of view of of evaluating the experiment?
1: Oh, certainly. Certainly. The FTA, Federal Transit Administration, is a partner in all those pieces, and they are um, not only investing in it, but then they are investing in making sure that the lessons learned are widely disseminated, yeah.
0: Yeah, that seems like uh, an interesting situation where the Small transit operators may be able to teach the big operators something.
1: Well, you know, what, what, the the beauty of a smaller transit operation is there's much less distance between kind of uh, the the management and the driver. There, this, it's usually maybe one step, and so um, the people that tend to flourish in the smaller transit systems are ones that want to be able to react quickly to changes and, and try new things and not have to deal with kind of uh, uh, large bureaucracies, but rather can, can be a little bit more inventive and, and, and spur of the moment. Um, not that, you know, people's safety you ever take as spur of the moment, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a more flexible environment.
0: And more opportunistic, yes. It sounds like it, it's an, an ideal environment. What about funding? You mentioned that Fairbox is not primary. Are one of the sources of funding for these operations?
1: Well, um, for rural systems, there's a pot of money known, and, and I, I apologize ahead of time for the for the for the gobbledygook here, but it's known as Section fifty three eleven. It's rural public transit investment, and that goes out uh, when I started at CTAA in nineteen eighty eight, I think, and. In '89, we were ecstatic that that had hit six million dollars nationally. Well, in the last bill, it's just a little bit shy of a billion going nationally. So it's growing, um, and there are more systems, and there's more need and demand.
0: So is that operating subsidy money?
1: Yes. So 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 rural transit funds can be used for both capital and operating if you're going to use it for operating you've got to match it with a local share of 50-50 if you're going to use it for capital you've got to match it at 80-20 just like any transit system would for capital but yes there is operating eligibility for urban system, for rural systems
0: excuse me how do they raise the the local
1: 50% in all sorts of ingenious ways most of these systems don't have a dedicated tax source uh, so they're going to use um, uh, investment from local communities that they're serving so uh, i have a I have a member on my board who runs a system in Iowa and he always tells me that uh, his business card should say rural transit director and then in parentheses professional beggar um, <laughs> and they cobble they cobble it together that way and 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 they're good at it that's that's the good news and it's not hard to get. Communities in normal economic times to invest in systems that keep seniors independent and living in their homes, or that connect veterans with VA and other kind of healthcare services. These are the kinds of things that that people want to invest public dollars in. in In tough economies, it, it, it can get a little tougher, and and that's one of the challenges. Is you you raise federal funds. Uh, which we've had success here in in DC in increasing the the investment, but with that then comes increases in that local share that they have to come up with that get increasingly difficult for a lot of rural communities.
0: Yeah. But it sounds like in, in, in broad terms that there there is political support for these community oriented services.
1: There is. It's 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 you know uh, uh, sometimes. You, it's it's it, it it's tougher during different yeah. periods, obviously. and it's also you've got to for the for the leadership and the advocates for these agencies, it's how you talk about what you do. you know in in big cities, they often talk about volume when they're talking about their transit services because they're transporting hundreds of thousands of people a day. and um, for the rural systems, we have to learn. And our language is value. And it's, it's not just that we had this many people on this, the bus, but it's what did they do when they left the bus? You know, and what does that accrue back into the local economy, into the community?
0: It strikes me, though, that that's an argument that uh, could be used and should be used for transit at all scales.
1: We agree. And that's one of the things we've seen, one of the fastest-growing segments of our membership are smaller cities hmm. that's where you get college towns and and places lo- like that and and that's where you're going to find increasingly that value proposition is an important one to, to communicate better and and in you know in the in this period where we're I don't know post pandemic endemic wherever we are right now um, w- that value is just so important be discussing because, you know, we learned so much during the pandemic about essential. And, and you know, I I tell people all the time, like pre-pandemic, many of us probably didn't think people working in a grocery store were essential. But, man, a couple weeks into the pandemic, we were all really grateful there were still people working in the grocery store so we could go get food. And the essential nature of that became really clear to all of us. That's the kind of piece, I think, that all transit, you're right, needs to be emphasizing and bringing forward so that people have a better understanding of the value.
0: It's it's an important point. I want to pursue one last issue, and that is, are a lot of your members uh, operating free systems, fair free systems?
1: Some. Not, not, I, I don't know if I would characterize it as a lot, but um, some are, certainly. And uh, some have been doing it, uh, I'm, I'm here in a meeting right now, uh, a conference, and I was meeting with a member of mine who um, operates an urban operation in Logan utah they 've been fare free since they began um, but there 's challenges more recently with fareless services kind of it used to be just an economic equation, right? How much would we lose in fare box recovery? What are we spending to manage those funds? Yeah. we do get them in you know how we balance the loss of that there 's a lot more discussion now. Around, particularly for fixed route operations, how do we deal with what they colloquially say here now as um, non-destination riders? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. How do we deal with with the, with those kinds of things? And and I've had several urban members that walked away from going fareless because it increased the kind of negative driver-passenger interactions yeah. when they had anticipated that taking the fairway would actually reduce that. It's increased, and I think that's part of it is because we're just generally across the country seeing a erosion of the safety net when it comes to kind of social and human service and mental health crises kind of resources. And so transit is, like a lot of other places, kind of seeing some negative impacts from that into the service that that going fareless in some communities has kind of made worse.
0: You expose yourself to a different risk. Yes, I understand that.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Scott, this has been really interesting. You've told us things that certainly I didn't know before uh, and emphasized the importance of transit across the board, but particularly in smaller communities in rural areas, and to think more about the social worth of mobility, and the way that you can deliver it. Thank you for spending the time with us to educate us. I really appreciate the opportunity you've given us.
1: Oh, well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things and uh, happy to uh, have someone who's interested in it. And if I can help in any way in the future, uh, don't don't hesitate to ask.
0: And thank you. You've emphasized uh, the reasons that we should be interested. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be well. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, please subscribe to our podcast and encourage your friends to join us too. The infrastructure show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois, under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schoffer. Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I.